Well, today's preaching passage comes from, a, from Ephesians 6, and we're going to be focusing on verse 17 today, but I'm going to read out the whole text, 10 through 20. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Eric. Uh, And uh, Eric with a C and Eric with a K as well, Pastor Eric and Eric. Um, It's good to be back with you and thank you to Pastor Ben for preaching uh, last week. I hear that went very, very well and pleased that we've got such a fantastic team um, at College Church. That's a sign, I think, of God's blessing. Um, For those of you who don't know, I was away uh, last week because I was traveling uh, to England uh, to drop my daughter off at uh, the University of, of York. And so I, since you've last seen me, I've traveled 3,000 miles twice over, and um, here I am back again, and uh, did a couple of evangelistic talks in Wheaton for uh, business uh, uh, leaders, uh, which are really going well. It's exciting to see how those things are developing, and done a bit of teaching at uh, the college, Wheaton College, uh, for which um, Pastor Josh Mao did some teaching for me while I was away. Anyway, it's been a busy busy uh, few days for me, and the Lord's been very faithful. One of the interesting experiences of traveling internationally these days is you need to take COVID tests, and I have been tested for COVID four times in the last week, so I definitely do not have it. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so now we're looking at the Bible, so let's do that together. Ephesians uh, chapter 6. And verse 17, let me read out the relevant part of the armor of God that we're focusing on this morning. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 17, Paul writing, And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. So we're focusing on uh, the helmet of salvation. Now obviously when we think about the helmet, what we're thinking about, remember all of these um, parts of the armor of God are an analogy, a, um, a, an extended metaphor for the spiritual warfare 
that we are all involved with. And when Paul comes to the helmet, obviously the helmet covers the head. And so what Paul's thinking about is the life of the mind, what we think about, our thought processes, our mind. And this issue of the mind is of great significance today. And so it really is important that we give our attention to this. It's of great significance. Why is that? Let me give you a couple of categories of why. One, external to the church, the interface of the church with the surrounding culture, whether, you, whether it's school or um, work or um, family members or friends, there's an interface so externally to the church. But then also internally, for both, in both those areas, it's of great significance. I call it um, the battle of the mind. That's the, that's the in many ways, this, uh, this is a companion piece to the belt of truth. Truth, obviously, objective truth, what's tr- the true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to call it. But now we're thinking about the mind, which is our, our engagement of that truth, our appropriation of that truth, what we think about our mind, and it's a great significance both externally and internally. So externally, um, the battle that Christianity is in right now in the Western world is predominantly a battle of the mind. It's a battle of ideas. And largely speaking, right now, we're losing that battle. And that's why the church is under huge pressure because the battle of ideas, the battle of the mind, many people engage with it, but we're not predominantly winning it. And a lot of Christian leaders misunderstand, I think, the nature of the battle that we're in. Uh, I I came across this a lot in New England when I was doing ministry out there. New England, of course, is a a largely speaking very post-Christian, post-modern, uh, secular kind of space. And in that place, a lot of Christian leaders, when they go there to try and do ministry, think that the issue is related to stylistic things, like you need, um, uh, you need a physical space that uh, 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 is more fashionable, that, that, that where the, the music is more, uh, more dynamic, or uh, the parking is better, or you have um, the coffee is improved, because, you know, church coffee is usually terrible, not ours, it's brilliant. Um, but you know what I mean. And, so, uh, and that's the issue. But that isn't the issue. The reason why, and it's very clear when we did the ministry in New England, the reason why New Englanders do not go to church is not because they think our coffee is bad. The reason why they do not go to church is because they don't think it's true. That's why they're not going. They're not persuaded that what we're talking about is sufficiently compelling that it is worth getting out of bed for on Sunday morning rather than going for a bike ride or visiting some museums or reading uh, The Economist or whatever else you do on a Sunday morning. That's the issue. They're not persuaded it's true. And when the church in the West and around the world has had massive impact, it's because it's won the battle of the mind. And this is, it just, you can see this over and over again. It's, uh, this, so at the Re- for one example of this would be the Reformation. The Reformation, the leaders of the, of the Reformation were basically what we would call today thought leaders. They, were, they, they weren't just parroting sentimental, superficial, trivial words. They had new ideas that were compelling to society. 
So Martin Luther, John Calvin, Melanchthon, um, Zwingli, all these people, all of whom had their own faults, I'm not hero-worshipping, they all had their own issues, but all of them were thought leaders. And, and therefore, society was increasingly persuaded that what was being said was worth giving your life to. It was compelling. We're in a battle of the mind right now, externally, but then also internally. So internally to the church, because, and this is part of the paradox of the times in which we live, while there is this kind of battle of the mind, at the same time we are living in what the philosopher Charles Taylor said uh, called the age of authenticity, by which he meant that we're living in a time when, when we are being encouraged to invent ourselves, to be authentic to what we feel. And so we're living, and so this impacts us as Christians within the church, that we're, we're being swept around by our feelings, what feels good, what feels right, because I have to be authentic to my feelings. And of course, what that does, this is why, and you, you, we've done surveys like this, and you could do surveys throughout the country, that's why Christians today are, are struggling with anxiety and depression and sadness and confusion, because we, we've bought into the feeling and the, the ministry style that's been predominantly feeling-led. And of course, feelings are important. I mean, I spent years studying Jonathan Edwards, and his big thing was the affections. Feelings matter, I get that, but we're being led by our feelings because of this culture of the age of authenticity. Uh, combined with technological, visual, always visually stimulated and, 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 and pictures and visual um, communicate things, but they, they don't communicate an argument. They just, they're just a flash of an image. And so if you're constantly like images, 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 and you've got this age of authenticity, then the, the end result is Christians have just been blown around by their feelings here and there. It doesn't feel right or it does feel right or it doesn't feel right and so we're unstable we're anxious so it's a massive issue this battle of the mind and that all that's just a setup that what we're going to talk about this morning matters okay so the question then is what is it that Paul is saying and the answer to that is obviously twofold he's talking about the helmet and then salvation so that's what does he mean by the helmet well there's some conversation about this down through the years. And um, so one uh, approach to this, um, uh, exemplified by a man called F.F. F. Bruce, who was a great New Testament scholar of the 20th century. F.F. F. Bruce basically argued that the helmet, along with all the other pieces of the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians, are a reflection of what the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, describes um, as the Messiah, the Christ, and his armor. So in Isaiah, um, there's this um, description of the Messiah who comes to wage spiritual war and put on various pieces of the armor of God to defeat injustice, to push back darkness, to have victory over evil. And Isaiah 59 verse 17, he puts on the helmet of salvation. So F.F. F. Bruce and others would say, therefore, what Paul has in mind is this messianic figure. And remember, in Ephesians, uh, Paul describes how we as a church are now one, we're one new humanity in Christ, and therefore as this one new messianic community, we put on the armor of God, the armor of this Messiah to push back injustice, to defeat evil, 
to proclaim the gospel. We put on these different armor, uh, pieces of the armor of God, and this is one of them, the helmet of the salvation. So that's one way of articulating what Paul's saying here by the helmet. The other way, though, which has been more common down through the years, is to think that what Paul's really talking about is uh, the, the helmet of um, a Roman soldier. And if that's the case, what Paul, in Paul's mind is actually um, not, when we think of the Roman helmet, we think of um, the, the, the later Roman helmets, what scholars call the imperial helmet, which was sort of fancy in various ways, but probably um, in Paul's time, the kind of helmet that he would have seen is what's known as the coolest helmet, which is much simpler. So it was more like if you've seen um, pictures of um, American infantrymen in World War II, and they have this simple like bowl helmet. It's more like that. And it would have had like a metal bowl, and then at the back, in addition, would have been like a, a lip to cover the neck, and then probably also like um, side plates uh, to cover the, uh, the cheeks, and then a little place at the top to put like some, uh, a plume or something like a feather to, to sort of trick it out, you know, to make it look good. And, and so <laughs> I'm sure they didn't say trick it out, but you know what I mean. And, and so that would have been, so maybe that's, that could have been the picture. But uh, and, and frankly, having thought about it for a lot over a while, I'm not sure, quite sure, you know, was Paul thinking about the Messiah, Messianic community of Isaiah, in, in, in Messianic figure of Isaiah, maybe, or was he looking at like the Roman soldier who was imprisoning him, that was predominantly in his mind, I don't know for sure. But either way, or maybe it's both, Either way, the point is, here's a helmet, it's covering your mind. So it's a cover, a protection for your thoughts. Now that then, so it's helmet, now salvation. What does he mean by salvation? Well, again, there's been a lot of conversation of that down through the years. Um, so some people, and this again would be F.F. F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, F.F. F. Bruce would say that what Paul means by salvation here is predominantly past salvation. So a little side note, in the New Testament, when um, uh, the New Testament uses the, the word group for saved or salvation, it doesn't just mean uh, like you got saved at an evangelistic event or something like that. Of course, it, it does refer to that, but it doesn't just mean that. There are three tenses of salvation in the New Testament, past salvation, present salvation, which is what we would tend to call becoming more holy, but the, the Bible uses that as present salvation. You are being saved. So in the New Testament, you have been saved from your sin. You are being saved from your sin. That is, you're becoming more holy. That's how Christian subculture would use it, but the New Testament talks about present salvation as well. And then one day you will be saved, or what we would call going to heaven, be glorified. And so, but anyway, F.F. F. Bruce says, in, in Paul's mind, this is predominantly about past salvation. And the reason why he says that is because in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, uh, Paul um, describes salvation in the past sense, uh, past tense. So he says there, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So obviously, that's past tense. So F.F. F. Bruce would say, 
Paul, when he talks about salvation in Ephesians, is always talking about it in the, in the past, and therefore Paul has in his mind the past. He could be right. The, the difficulty with it is that while, of course, Ephesians 2 is in the past tense, in the structure of the book of Ephesians we've seen, is basically structured around the first part is all about what Jesus has done, but now, in consequence, there are things, therefore, we should do. So it's not, to me at least, it isn't immediately persuasive that because in Ephesians chapter 2 he uses the past tense, therefore it must be about our past salvation. But anyway, that's F.F. Bruce's interpretation. By contrast, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, thought instead that uh, the Apostle Paul was thinking about our future salvation here. And the reason why um, Martin Lloyd-Jones thought that was because Paul talks about the armor of God in another place in the New Testament in uh, 1 Thessalonians, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, verse 8, when the Apostle Paul talks about uh, the helmet of salvation, he describes it this way. He says, the helmet, uh, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So that's obviously future hope. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones made the case that you understand what Paul means by the, hel- uh, by the helmet of salvation in Ephesians by looking, cross-referencing to the, uh, to the letter to the Thessalonians and seeing there that Paul therefore um, defines it as the hope of salvation and therefore what Paul means in Ephesians 2 is the hope of salvation or future salvation. And, and, and again, there's a good point to that. The challenge though with that interpretation is that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, he also describes the breastplate. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, though, it's the breastplate of faith and love. Whereas we know uh, that he describes the breastplate in, uh, in the book of Ephesians as the breastplate of righteousness. So that leads me, at any rate, to conclude that when Paul uses uh, this image of the armor of God, it's not fixed like, like it's typical for preachers. So preachers tend to have like a, a standard stock of illustrations, you know, and you, they're ones, the illustrations they know work, they connect, and they use them in slightly different ways at slightly different times. And uh, I'm sure the Apostle Paul, you can see this in the Gospels, Jesus has a standard set of illustrations and they're used in slightly different ways at slightly different times. It's just, that's what preachers are like. And Paul probably similarly had this, he knew it connected, this armor of God image for our spiritual warfare, and he used it when he wrote to the Thessalonians, and he used it when he wrote to the Ephesians, but it doesn't necessarily mean that exactly each piece meant exactly the same thing. He would apply it in slightly different ways. So to me, at any rate, it isn't definitive uh, for understanding what he means about it in the book of Ephesians by how he uses it in, 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 in Thessalonians, especially because one of the pieces of the armor in Thessalonians he describes in an entirely different way, as far as I can see. So then what does Paul mean by the helmet of salvation? Well, in my view, it's kind of both. And the reason for that is in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, and there Paul in the first chapter so the first part of Ephesians is all about what Jesus has done and therefore what we will do. But this first amazing vision of salvation that you get in the first part of the first chapter is setting up the whole book. And what you see there in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 is, as I say, kind of both. So he says, in him, 
That's, of course, in Christ. You also, when you heard the word of truth, what is the word of truth? It is the gospel of your salvation. So here it is. What is that? You believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that's past. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's part of the gospel of of your salvation. But also it's future. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? That's still to come. Until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. So in my view... When Paul in Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 6, 17 says the helmet of salvation, salvation is both past and future. So, so here it is in a sentence, right? How do we win the battle of the mind? What's, what, do we, what is Paul saying about that? What he's saying is the way to win the battle of the mind is to focus on our past and therefore future salvation. That's the way we win the battle of, of the mind. That's how we put on the helmet of salvation, to focus upon, as man our mind, focusing upon our past. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been saved. By grace you have been saved. About our past, but also our future, uh, not, but also, therefore, as a consequence, necessarily, our future salvation is guaranteed by the fact that we have been saved, we have the Holy Spirit, that we will acquire possession of this inheritance, our future salvation. And, and to win the battle of the mind, both externally as we engage with secular society and internally in the church with all this feelings here, there, and everywhere, it's to focus on our finished, past, and therefore future salvation. And that will give us the mind the confidence, the courage, the stability that we need, the set of tools that we need to engage and win the battle of ideas, of the finished work of Christ on the cross, but then also the ongoing future, uh, the work of God ongoing that will lead to the future certain inheritance to come. And with that framework, then we can engage and interact and win the battle of the mind externally, but then also internally have the security that finished salvation and therefore future salvation. You say, well, how does that work? Let me, let me explain how that works then. And the way I'm just going to do it is just to uh, work through each of those components. So focus, finished, and then future salvation. So how does this work? Well, it's first of all about the focus. So it's about the mind. And here... Here, the church, in its battle for market share, so if you're not a Christian leader and you haven't been involved in church politics, God bless you and may you be kept out of it forever. Not leadership, but church politics forever. But, but the, the, and, and I'm like putting back the, um, the curtain a little bit. The truth of the matter is that the church in the West has been engaged in a kind of consumeristic battle for market among Christians for years. And so there's this huge pressure on Christian leaders to create a better product, a more appealing product, and that has led many churches to lead with feelings 
and sentiment and what will be most consumable. And the end result of that has been a dumbed-down Christianity that is now entirely ill-equipped to deal with this battle of the ideas. And so what we need to do is change the focus. And, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm teaching a little bit across the college with some students there. We're doing a class called Gospel Ministry, and we're just going through Second Timothy and looking at Paul's priorities and comparing them to contemporary ministry priorities. And of course, there are many good contemporary ministries, but there are some which are less good. And, you know, one that's less, illustration one that's less good is um, the Instagram account, which in a sort of joking way... Uh, goes around taking pictures of preachers who wear very expensive sneakers. It's called preachers and sneakers. And you, you, I mean, it's just, you know, and it has a little price tag next to the sneaker. You know, there's a preacher, the guy on the platform, and you look at his sneaker, and it's like $2,000 or something. It's like, really? You can, like, my sneakers have got holes in them. But anyway, and, um, but you've got all that. You know what I mean? And then we wonder why people think Christianity doesn't make sense and it isn't true. The reason why is because we lead with preachers and sneakers. It's not going to persuade people. Now, don't misunderstand me. What I'm not saying is therefore, I'm not talking about IQ, like how intelligent we are. I'm not talking about that, nor am I talking about college education I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the mind. I mean, believe me, you can be highly educated and not win the battle of the mind, not be wise. And um, there's actually a little uh, funny story about this that Malcolm Gladwell uh, brought out. Malcolm Gladwell, in his, in his book, David and Goliath, described how uh, one-time scholars were trying to figure out a, a, a uh, quicker intelligence test. So the intelligence test runs about 100 questions or something like that. And three scholars wanted to come up with an intelligence test that wasn't as good as the 100-question test, but was pretty good and only took three or so questions. And it wouldn't be as good as the 100-person test, but you'd get it done much quicker. So, you know, they were trying to figure this out. And there were three scholars um, doing it, and one of the scholars was a man called Tversky. And Tversky at the time was reputed by his friends to be the the, just the brightest, most intelligent person alive at the time. Just, uh, you know, like, who knows what his IQ was, but certainly above 150, you know, really, really bright, crazy bright, that meant to be the, the brightest person alive at the time. And the joke they came up with was the ultimate intelligent test wouldn't have 100 questions or three, but actually one. And the one question would be, how long, when you're in conversation with Tversky, how long would it take you to figure out that he is brighter than you? You know, the longer it took you, the less intelligent you were. If it just took you a couple of seconds, you were really, really bright. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about intelligence or education. What I'm talking about is the mind to actually focus on the, on, the, on the truth of Christianity. And yes, emotion with it, like I'm getting excited now. We can be excited. We can lift our hands and praise God. I'm not, I'm not arguing for boring and uneffective Christianity, but I'm arguing for a, a, a realignment, a refocus on, on the mind, because otherwise the engagement with the world, we, work, we will lose the battle of ideas, but not only that, our feelings will be like blown here, there, and everywhere. How do we focus on then dealing with the feelings? Well, so we have focus, but then we also have like the, um, the finished aspect. 
So this finished aspect will Christian, now I'm talking to Christians, this is, I've been talking about like engaging with secular culture, now I'm talking like individually, pastorally, to you as a Christian, to th- this finished nature of Christ's work on the cross is, I think in many ways today, the words that Jesus spoke on the cross, it is finished, are some of the most important words to reflect on. He did not say on the cross, go do some more work. He said, it is finished. And what that means is, you can rest. It's finished. Look, Christian, it's not in your hands. It's in his hands. It's finished. And to focus on the finished work on the, cry, on the cross will, will release you from an unnecessary burden to solve all the problems of the world, to fix everyone's issues, to be like the best Christian you possibly can be, all the kind of Western, Wheaton, suburb attainment stuff. No, it is finished. Look, I, I, um, uh, when I was on the mission field and wrestling with all sorts of different things, a particularly different difficult time for me when I was 22, a friend, uh, an older friend of mine sent me a, a piece of paper. To, he told me, he wrote this down, it's a quotation actually from Martin Lloyd-Jones that he'd spoken, I think, personally to this mentor of mine, not something he'd written or preached, but spoken to him. And he, he sent it to me as like passing on that this is what Lloyd-Jones said, I want you to memorize it and keep it in your wallet until you've memorized it. I have memorized it, but it's still my wallet. And What he said was this, this is the Lloyd-Jones quotation, what matters is not what you feel is true about yourself at any moment. What matters is what you know is true about God at every moment. it, It will release you from an anxiety, from a like, where's my life going, and am I feeling the right thing? And No, 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 no. It is finished. The work on the cross is finished. And you know that. That's true. And therefore, the guilt, you know, the devil comes in and said, you sinned this week. How dare you come to church? You, you think you're going to go to heaven? No. You can reply, it's finished. It's done. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do your best in the power of the Spirit to be more holy, but it does mean you're going to heaven. It's finished. And so you, you have focus, then finished, but then also future. Lloyd-Jones, when he's talking about this, he says that one of the greatest temptations that the devil uses to Christians is to tempt them to give up, to say what you're doing is not worth it. The time you're spending in church, the time you're spending serving in Bible study, the time you're spending making coffee, the time you're spending in the children's ministry, the, the investment you're putting into your children's lives, the, 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 the way you hold back to give honor to your parents, the, the devil comes in and says, none of that's worth it. Uh, and, but the future focus helps you realize that your life is not being wasted. Why? Because your future Salvation is certain and definite, and therefore everything you do for him has value. Uh, One of my uh, favorite psalms is Psalm 56, and in that Psalm 56 verse 8, it says that God keeps your tears in a bottle. And what that means is that even your tears are not wasted.
even your weeping. He keeps it. It has value. Even your tears. Because because of the finished salvation, the future salvation. You focus on the finished and therefore uh, the future. Let me uh, conclude with this. C.T. Studd. So uh, one of the larger... Um, mission organizations in the world is uh, one called WEC, W-E-C, and the founder of WEC was a man called C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was uh, a, 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 a part of a group of undergraduate college students who were called the Cambridge Seven because each of them uh, left all their privileged status and went off to be missionaries in China. C.T. Studd was particularly gifted. He came from a very, very wealthy background. And he was thought to be one of the best athletes of his generation. And he abandoned all that to go be a missionary in China. And here was his thinking. By the way, C.T. Studd was... Why did C.T. Studd become a Christian? Because his, his father was converted through the preaching of D.L. Moody. So T, I didn't know that. I found that out this week. So C.T. Studd... This is his thinking. Why did, he, why, why did he think serving Jesus had value? Here's what he said. And th- these are famous words of his. I won't read them all out. There's a long poem he wrote about it, but I'll read out a couple of the stanzas. He said this. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, And from my mind, my mind, my mind, from my mind would not depart. So what are these words? Here they are famously, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. See, when you you focus on on the finished and therefore future salvation. That means you can be at rest. But it also means now you have something to do. Now your life matters. Now you can give yourself fully to the work of Christ because only what's done for him will last. So the helmet of salvation... In a sentence, we win the battle of the mind by focusing on our finished and therefore future salvation. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for the truth of it. We pray, Lord, that we will put on this helmet of salvation and focus on our finished and therefore future salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.